The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Presidential Libations. The pressure of living and working in the White House can be immense, so pouring a glass of beer, wine, or whiskey every now and then to relax and unwind, well, it's pretty understandable. But to each president his own. Over time, some may have drunk too much, some not at all, and some cleverly using a well-crafted cocktail, or two, as yet another political tool to push their agenda. From the first POTUS to some of our most recent, we're serving up the extraordinarily intoxicating history of presidential drinking. It's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Braun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. By sharing their challenges, their stories, and their personalities, we hope to add some clarity and perspective for today's heated political conversations. Drinking on the job is not a problem for Mark Will Weber. It's actually what he does for a living. This journalist, author, historian, and mixologist has put together several books in the long history of presidents and alcohol. And I love the titles of his books. Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, The Complete History of Presidential Drinking. Drinking with the Democrats, The Party Animal's History of Liberal Libations. Drinking with the Republicans, the politically incorrect history of conservative concoctions. Love those. If you'd like more information on any of these, simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org and we'll have a direct link there. Mark, let's get after it. The American POTUS bar is open for business. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to it. Mark, thanks so much. Let's look first at a few of the presidents you discuss, and then we'll jump into some more general questions about drinking with the POTUS. So, as with so many things, let's start with the first POTUS, George Washington. Can you tell us how he was connected to the greatest of all spirits, whiskey? Well, yeah, and it's very interesting that Washington really sort of preferred champagne and Madeira. A lot of those pre-revolution guys drank Madeira, and it was fortified Madeira that sometimes had rum in it as well. So he drank that. He loved porter, and he drank champagne. I always say that Washington is one of the few presidents that we know alcohol actually improved him. By that, I say the knock against Washington was that he was very standoffish and cold. But we know from the diaries and letters of people that visited him at Mount Vernon that after a couple of glasses of champagne, he would loosen up a little bit. He'd be a little more gregarious and outgoing and warm and friendly. So alcohol actually improved Washington. Now, the whiskey is interesting because we can't find that Washington himself drank much whiskey. And if he did, it was probably quite sparingly. We, we don't have any letters of him saying, hey, I, I want this whiskey. But how he uh, became involved with whiskey is that he had a Scotch overseer by the name of Anderson at Mount Vernon. And Anderson told Washington, hey, you know, we could we could make whiskey and you could make a lot of money. Uh, he told him that... Uh, he could find his account in that. And by that, he meant that he could he could make money. And so Washington uh, 
finally came around and said, yeah, go ahead. And, and Anderson and his son knew how to make this whiskey. And, and they had the uh, slaves do all the hard stuff. They were lugging everything around and, and doing all the construction of the still stills and the still house and all that. And at one point, they had five stills cranking out whiskey, which was a lot of gallons. And they would sell it off the backs of uh, wagons in Old Town, Alexandria. And it became one of the most profitable items on uh, on Washington's plantation. And in addition to that, I thought it was interesting that a couple of years before Washington, when he was still president, had put down the Whiskey Rebellion out west at the urging of Hamilton, because Hamilton wanted the taxes and those moonshiners out near Pittsburgh and such didn't want to pay any money to the government. So Washington sent uh, Light Horse Harry Lee out there to crush the Whiskey Rebellion, which he did. And then within a year or two, Washington decides, hey, you know, maybe I'll go into the whiskey business. Presumably, he paid his taxes on it. Well, you also mentioned that that several of the founding fathers, and of course, many other presidents have liked wine an awful lot. Why do you call Thomas Jefferson the first father of American wine? Well, Jefferson, uh, it's those early presidents, it's funny. Washington and John Adams drank just about anything. And we know this from their letters and their diaries and such. But by the time you get to Jefferson, Jefferson is, did drink hard cider and he drank beer, pretty potent beer too. It was close to 10% alcohol. And he called cider and beer as table drinks. So I didn't realize this, but they would have cider and beer with their dinner. Wine was considered more of an after-dinner drink, pontificating on philosophy and science and literature in the library, maybe uh, with cigars or pipes or whatever as well. Jefferson liked that 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 idea. Of, he, he was a Renaissance man, as you know. He was interested in all sorts of things. So he liked the idea of uh, sort of this European idea of sipping your wine and uh, exploring topics of interest. But when he really kind of turned uh, the corner on the wine thing was when he relieves Franklin in Paris as the ambassador to France. And uh, when he's there, Franklin already has a wine cellar of 1,100 bottles of wine, five different kinds of champagne. So I like to say that Franklin was sort of the grandfather of wine. But he introduces Jefferson to all these European wines. Now, Jefferson had some of them uh, imported prior to that. but he also introduced them to, to these vintners and uh, uh, French winemakers and such. And at one point, Jefferson goes off for several months and just tours France and northern Italy, uh, going to wineries. And uh, he makes packs with the, the people that own these wineries to send the wine directly to Monticello so there's no middleman. Because the middlemen were famous for watering down the wine. They would buy it from the vintners and then cut it in half and water it down and make double the profit. So Jefferson went right to the source and always demanded the very best. So by the time he comes back, he he's sort of the first American wine bore as well. And, and there's even, you know, you'll find in letters that John Adams will write to Abigail, he said, you know, had dinner with Jefferson and the usual stuff about wine went on and on, where he's actually complaining that Jefferson only wants to talk about wine and when Monroe was elected president, he and Jefferson were quite close, and Jefferson sends him a lengthy, several-page letter. And the first paragraph is, hey, congratulations on being president. I know you'll make a great one. 
And the the rest of the pages are all about what wines that Monroe should order. You know, it's just page after page of why, why he should get this particular vintage. Now, a very different character from Jefferson, uh, President Andrew Jackson. And you recount in your book one really historic moment from his presidency that involved a toast. Can you remind us what that toast was and why we still remember it all these years later? Yeah, it's very interesting because it, it involves uh, John C. Calhoun and uh, South Carolina threatening to uh, leave the Union if their state's rights were trampled upon by the federal government. So, And it's amazing how some of these old topics are still relevant today. You know, you have this, this constant tug of war about the state's rights and when will the state and the and the federal government prevail? Calhoun got up and gave a toast at this uh, at this democratic gathering, and it was something to the effect of, uh, you know, the the union next to our liberty most dear. May we all remember that it can only pres- be preserved by respecting the rights of the states. And of course, Jackson did not like this at all, and he got up and gave a counter toast and stared down Calhoun while he did it. Uh, and keep in mind that Jackson loved to fight duels, so it always made people nervous if you got on his bad side. He already had a couple bullets in him, actually, in his body at this point, even though he was uh, getting older and feeble. But he still had the, the temper, his famous temper, and he got up and, and said, Our union, and then lifted his glass, and he said, It must be preserved. And behind the scenes, he told Calhoun, basically, I'll come down to South Carolina with the Army and I'll hang you. So. Um, he kind of got through on several different levels. Fairly straightforward, yes. Uh, so uh, let's let's jump forward a little bit in time to Ulysses Grant, and and we know that as you look at his presidency, it's undergoing a big reevaluation for the better. But some still say that Ulysses, throughout his life, had a problem with alcohol. So, what, do you believe that was the case? I absolutely believe that Ulysses S. Grant was a episodal alcoholic. And I think, uh, and I don't say that demeaningly. I had somebody that originally uh, had my book, and he said, "Oh, you really worked over my man Grant in your book." And I, and I actually hold Grant in higher esteem because I think he he was well aware that he had this issue, was able to to most of the time repress the urge to drink. He was he was not a good drinker. It's funny you see this burly guy on the fifty dollar bill, and you would think this guy could probably knock it away. But, but Grant, as a young man, was actually like 130 pounds and five foot seven, maybe, when he was in the Mexican-American War, when he first started to drink and use tobacco. Now, he did get portly in his latter years, but he was a bad drinker. People would go to me, Grant was a big drinker. And I said, Grant was a very bad drinker. He was a guy that would have one drink and his face would already be flushed. If he had two, he, he would be off to the races. He didn't have good breaks. Uh, he just didn't have a talent to drink, but he wanted to drink. Now, mainly, he most historians do agree on this. When Grant did drink, it was because he was lonely, uh, away from his wife, that kind of thing. Um, of course, his wife couldn't be at the battlefront with him at all times. There was a friend of his that was in his uh, officer corps by the name of Rollins. And Rollins's ma- major function was to keep alcohol away from Grant. But there was plenty of guys that wanted to drink with Grant, and uh, sometimes he would do an end around and circumvent Rollins. And there is no case, though, where we see that Grant uh, was drunk in a battle or any of that nonsense. 
But in between battles, you know, he sometimes would would get carried away. One of the times was after he won the Battle of Vicksburg in July of 63, about the same time Gettysburg uh, was being fought. A couple months later, they had a victory celebration for the fall of Vicksburg down in New Orleans. This was September. And Grant fell off his horse and injured himself badly to the point where he was out for about three weeks. And most people believe that was an alcohol-related incident because Grant was a fine horseman and uh, under normal circumstances, but he had been celebrating. They made some excuse that a train whistle spooked the horse and so on and so forth. But Rollins wrote a letter to his uh, fiance and said, more or less admitted that, you know, Grant had uh, overindulged. And that's uh, why the New Orleans incident happened. Generally, what I've heard is that even if you um, you say he was he was doing that during the war and certainly before the war, during the presidency, he seemed to abstain more. Is that was that the case? I wouldn't say research? abstained. He he became more secretive about it. He went to these private clubs where he could drink with his cronies. He was surrounded by his cronies. He was very careful about it. He he had enormous alcohol bills in the White House, you know, ordered top shelf stuff. He graduated away from, you know, sort of what we would call, uh, you know, really raw rot gut whiskey to uh, very expensive European brandies and wines and so forth. So his uh, top shelf was uh, a little uh, better than what he was accustomed to as a soldier. Uh, and there's one wonderful story that I love that uh, this newspaper editor a fairly powerful guy from upstate New York, a Cornell grad, came down and played poker with Grant and his cronies, and they drank the whole time they played poker. And the next morning, the guy woke up and found that Grant had appointed him ambassador to Greece. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be careful. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the guy's rivals said, is is this a prerequisite to become an ambassador? You have to drink and play cards with Grant? So... So I wonder if he won or lost. I, I don't know if that's if he wanted to go to Greece. I, I would love to do that, but I don't know if that was a punishment yeah, or a reward. I don't know. I would think that would have been a pretty good post yeah, in the 1870s. Yeah. But one person who, when you look at his size, you might think he was a big drinker was Taft. But as you say, he was a pretty moderate drinker. But he was known as the father of modern bourbon whiskey. Why, why is that the case? Well, Taft, he uh, probably got pressured a little bit or at least made aware that there was people out there making anything, any kind of quality whiskey and, and stamping Kentucky bur- bourbon on the label. And uh, Taft saw that this was unfair. I mean, Taft went on to serve in the Supreme Court, so he loved things like this. So he backed uh, something called the Taft decision on whiskey uh, December 27th, 1909. And it it basically narrowed down the definition of what you could call Kentucky bourbon. You know, they they wouldn't just uh, had to, as you know, have 51 percent corn, that kind of thing. So he he gets very high marks for that. Now, we always had scotch on hand. And this is interesting, not for himself, but his uh, aide, Archibald Butt, who was a colonel, Colonel Archibald Butt who tragically went down on the Titanic, uh, but served both uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Taft. And he loved high-grade Scotch whiskey. So whenever Taft was talking to some boring politician and he wanted company, he would he would entice Butt to come in and sit down and, and bear the burden with him by offering him this great <laughs> Scotch. 
But Archie Butt does have a, a great uh, eggnog recipe in the book, by the way, that he that he was handed down by his grandmother or something. So FDR, let's jump to him. You call him the mixologist in chief. Why why is that the case? Well, let's say he was he was more enthusiastic than skilled as a as a bartender, and there was there were people that just couldn't bear his drinks because he he basically didn't do a whole lot of measuring. He just would grab the bottle, throw a little lad in there, and then grab this the other bottle and. And uh, so the quality of FDR's drinks weren't great, but they were served with enthusiasm. And he's the president, so you're not going to so say, hey, this is terrible and send it back. One of my favorite stories about FDR was uh, Hemingway's uh, second wife. Her name's going to escape me here. I'll think of it. Um, anyway, she was a journalist, a skilled journalist uh, in her own right. And she was friendly with both Eleanor Roosevelt and the president, so they would often invite her to the White House or to their place up in New York. And she she tells this great story of walking down the uh, stairs at the White House and hearing giggling from the cloak closet. And she's very intrigued, you know, she can't help but, but look in, you know. And uh, here she sees the president in there. Uh, I just thought of her name, Martha Gellhorn. And Martha Gellhorn looks into the closet, and there's FDR in there mixing up a batch of uh, cocktails and a couple people around him. And in Gellhorn's words, giggling like a schoolboy. And she's thinking, what on earth? But what happened is whenever FDR's mother was there, she frowned upon drinking. She'd sort of scowl at him and let him have one. But if he went to make a second one, she'd pipe in with, Franklin, don't you think you've had enough? And she didn't care who was there, you know, some head of state. And uh, so there he was. He went off to the cloak closet, mixed a batch of cocktails up to hide from his mother. So, yeah, you have a situation where the leader of the Western world is, uh, like most of us, scared of their mother. In fact, my my own mother, who was like 90-something when she was reading this book about Gellhorn, found that little nugget for me. (laughs) That is true. You mentioned earlier presidents who couldn't handle a drink. And certainly what I've read about President Nixon is, is, uh, you know, one drink would have a, a, a definite effect on him. You have a great story in your book about President Nixon's effort to recreate a Chinese drink and almost burning down the White House. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, the Chinese have this very powerful, uh, it's essentially like white lightning. It would be equivalent to our, our West Virginia moonshine. It's uh, called myotai. It's made out of sorghum, I believe, and it's very, very potent. And um, the people around Nixon were were scared to death that, of course, the Chinese would want Nixon to drink these toasts of this stuff. It was sort of a tradition. They knew that Nixon had low tolerance, and they said, under no circumstances should the president drink this. But he did. He he had a couple uh, hits of it and and did okay, didn't get... uh, too obliterated, but he was intrigued by it. He brought it, brought it home and uh, was showing off to his daughters and setting it on fire. And it caught the tablecloth at the White House on fire. And it, it may be a little embellished, but apparently there was this moment where they're like, whoa, you know, they, they, maybe the table's going to be on fire next. And, you know, they rushed about and put it out. Years later, Kissinger joked about this with, with uh, 
some of the uh, the Chinese diplomats and said, you know, you realize that the, when Mr. Nixon brought that stuff back, he almost burned down the White House. I wonder if that was captured on any of the tapes. That'd be great to hear the reactions. <laughs> yeah. There is an incident with Nixon um, where the British ambassador got in touch with the White House and said that, you know, the prime minister from Britain wanted to talk to Nixon about some crisis in the Suez. And, uh, and you hear Nixon's uh, handlers say, well, you know, could you tell him tomorrow? Because I was just with the president and he, he was kind of toasted. <laughs> so, you know, there is an incident where, you know, Nixon couldn't answer the bell. And of course, late in life, when he was trying to fend off the, the Watergate stuff, he, I liked this story, he'd be out in San Clemente and it'd be midnight and he'd be drinking scotch. And he would say to Haldeman or Ehrlichman, get Lenny on the phone. And Lenny was his poor lawyer back in Washington, D.C. And they'd say, but Mr. President, it's 3 uh, a.m. in Washington. I don't care. Get Lenny on the phone. And he would get his poor lawyer out of bed at 3 a.m. and and harangue him while he was uh, half looped on scotch. A couple times he fell asleep and Haldeman or Ehrlichman would take the phone and hang it up and put him to bed. So, Mark, we've been talking about some specific presidents. I want to open it up to the broader world of the 40-some presidents that we've had. So I have a couple questions. Which presidents drank the most and which drank the least or not at all? That's, that's a great question. And they're, they're, they're so interesting in different ways. I almost didn't do this book because I thought, all right, you know, Grant drank and Jefferson drank, but what am I going to do with guys like Jimmy Carter who didn't drink, you know, and Lincoln, Lincoln probably drank the least of anybody. But the problem was with the guys that didn't drink is everybody else around them drank and made them miserable anyway. Like Jimmy Carter's <laughs> brother, for instance, yeah. Billy, if yeah. you remember, well, yeah, and, Billy uh, Beer. Lincoln was always dealing with, you know, his generals and and siding with Grant, despite the rumors that Grant liked to drink, you know, uh, famously. Lincoln had a great sense of humor about alcohol, though. And as a young man, he worked in a whiskey still in, in uh, uh, Kentucky. And in fact, when he had the great Douglas-Lincoln debates, Douglas would always, who did love to drink, would always bring it up and make Lincoln sound like, like he was a drunkard. He'd say, Mr. Lincoln, you worked in a whiskey still. And you sold whiskey at your store, and uh, Lincoln would, you know, endure the tirade and then uh, say, yes, Mr. Douglas, but I quit my side of the aisle, and you, sir, were our best customer. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny, because you can actually find, uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that that exchange, and if you look at the uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, so... At the other end, the guys that drank the best, and by the best, I say that they could drink a lot and hold it. Buchanan, from my home state of Pennsylvania here, uh, was an, an enormous drinker. Now, he was a pretty big guy. He was like six two or 3, and burly. And they said that, that he could put it away for hours, and guys would try to keep up with him, and they'd be under the table, and Buchanan would still look like he really just started. And then surprisingly, Martin Van Buren, who was a little guy, probably our second smallest president, Madison is the tiniest at 5'3". Van Buren was like 5'5 five five or something, but could drink enormous amounts of alcohol. And uh, when I researched them, I, they were always talking, but they, there was some liquor, like, began with a G, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And it, it turned out to be gin. 
and he could drink enormous amounts of uh, gin because, as you know, he was of Dutch uh, ancestry. It's actually some town that made so much gin in Holland that they interchanged the word for gin. So for the longest time, I wasn't sure what this was that he was drinking. Actually, it was called Sheetum. Uh, it began with an S, not a G. And Sheetum is a town in Holland that made so much gin that sometimes they used it interchangeably. So when I was researching that, but but anyway, yeah, little Van Buren could put it away and, and uh, again, not show too many ill effects, although he had gout later in life, like a lot of these guys that overindulged, as, as did Buchanan. So specifically, who among the Democrats and the Republicans would you most like to have a drink with? Well, I would love to have a bourbon with Harry Truman. And Harry Truman uh, was a guy that would knock back a couple uh, ounces of whiskey almost every morning. And you're like, what? Here's what he would do is he, he would get up and he'd, he'd go for uh, like a two mile walk and then he'd come back and shower and shave and stuff. And then he'd drink two or three ounces of whiskey. And I don't know, I think this was uh, partly probably like a medicinal thing. You know, like some old relative probably told him, look, listen, Harry, if you have a little bourbon every, every morning, you won't get sick. You won't get the flu or something. But uh, don't get me wrong. He liked it the rest of the day as well. So, you know, Truman would have been an interesting guy to, to certainly uh, have some with. And I guess on uh, the Republican side, well, I probably would go with Teddy. Teddy ran as a Republican the first time and then became the bull moose candidate later. But Teddy would be interesting. Now, Teddy wasn't a big drinker. Uh, again, he would uh, he would have a little white wine with lunch and stuff. But I just think he'd be an interesting guy to to talk to, you know, and, and, and kind of hang with. And of course he would be the life of the party too, right? I mean, he was, yeah, I mean, he doesn't even need to be drunk. Right. Exactly. <laughs> He's high on, high on uh, his own enthusiasm really. So he, he would be fun to be, to be around, I think. All right. Which presidents have been the biggest fans of whiskey and bourbon? You would, you would start with, you know, we already talked about Washington and, and we talked about Jackson, but Jackson, like Washington, is one of the presidents that made his own whiskey. There's this great letter that I came across that he wrote to a captain, somebody who made him a pair of, of pistols, homemade pistols, probably dueling pistols that we know Jackson. But anyway, he writes this guy a letter and says, you know, thanks for the pistols. They're wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, you can stop by the whiskey still and help yourself to as much as you may want or require. So it's interesting they would use whiskey, uh, especially out in these, uh, what used to be the frontier states that only recently had gained statehood. And whiskey was almost like another commodity. So, um, you know, they would would trade whiskey for pistols, you know, that kind of thing. So those guys, surprisingly, Woodrow Wilson liked scotch, and I think mainly because of his Scotch-Irish ancestry. But Wilson is interesting because his campaign song actually was taken from a whiskey ad. There was a whiskey called Wilson's Whiskey. And their ad said, Wilson, that's all. Meaning, if you have Wilson's Whiskey, you don't need any other stuff. So Wilson, uh, Wilson and, and his campaign guys stole that that line and uh, and used it. You know, when he ran for president, Wilson, that's all. And they had a little song that went with it. You can Google the song. The song's a hoot and talks about drinking on the streetcar and drinking at the bar. Wilson, Wilson, that's all. And it's it, you should listen to it. It's funny. 
That's a pretty good trivia question right there. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Duly noted. All right. So you talked about Thomas Jefferson being a big fan of wine. What other presidents have been big fans of wine? Well, Jefferson influenced all those guys in his era to some degree. So Monroe and Madison were, were big wine people, drank lots of champagne, that kind of thing. When we get to Jackson, it swings back to whiskey a little bit. But uh, this isn't really that JFK drank it, but, but you know, his, uh, his wife was a big fan of French champagne. So they, they always had really good uh, high-priced French champagne for Jackie at the White House. And I do actually, I do love this one story where Jackie's sister, who was sort of a celebrity person, was over trying to teach JFK and some of his his uh, cronies how to do the, this new dance called the twist. She starts teaching them how to do the twist and JFK gets into it and he gets out this, these hundred dollar bottles of champagne and starts shaking them up and spraying them all over the, over the uh, white house furniture. Why Jackie's sister's teaching them how to do the twist. I, I feel compelled to tell you another great wine president story. And this involves our buddy Nixon and Nixon was famous for having really expensive uh, red wine at dinners served to himself while he served a, a far less vintage to his guests. So he, he instructed his waiters to wrap a towel around the label so that the people uh, didn't know what kind of wine they were getting while he was drinking this, uh, you know, feet Rothschild vintage himself. So if, if you have people over and you're drinking the, the good stuff uh, and then secretly serving your guests uh, a lesser brand, you're pulling a Nixon. I love that. All right. So when I think of beer and presidents, probably the most recent example I can think of is, is Obama's beer, you know, negotiations that he would have in the Rose Garden and stuff. Uh, what, other pre- what other presidents have been into beer? Grover Cleveland drank, drank a lot of beer. And uh, especially when he was a young politician up in Buffalo. And there's this wonderful story about Cleveland he was running, uh, I don't even know what it was for, it was some really mediocre office, but he and his friend were running against each other. And they both decided that, you know, it does, didn't look good for them to be out in these German beer gardens, you know, every other night getting half slosh. So they both agreed to limit themselves to like two mugs of beer. Okay. So after about a week of this, they both agreed that this was too arduous, that they couldn't possibly stick to this, but they didn't want to go back on their two mug thing. So what they did is just got like a 25 ounce Stein and had two of those. So they had 50 ounces of beer, but still had two glasses. So, uh, yeah, so he liked a lot of beer. Surprisingly, FDR, despite his love of cocktails and stuff, when he played poker, he liked to drink beer. So he would sometimes have three or four beers playing poker with his cronies. Interesting. So speaking of cocktails, what other presidents have been into cocktails other than FDR? Well, you know, almost uh, almost all those guys from the uh, 1900s on up, you know, they they all were sort of into the highball thing like Harding. I mean, Harding really was the guy that this story about Harding is why I wanted to do this book. A, A buddy of mine read that when Harding went golfing during Prohibition and nobody was supposed to drink. He would stash a fifth of whiskey in his golf bag and drink the whole time. You know, he'd, he'd drink a shot before he teed off and every three holes, he'd have another shot. By the back nine, he was shooting all over the place. He almost never broke a hundred. He 
often had these card games at uh, the White House, Harding, and uh, he would make his wife, uh, Florence, run around and serve all his cronies. So they were ordering whatever cocktail they wanted, you know, even though it was, again, prohibition. Nobody's supposed to drink, and those guys were getting half-looped in the White House. And he courted the dry vote. He pretended like, you know, when he first ran, he, he wanted to get all the, the dries in the Midwest and the, re- the religious uh, affiliations to vote for him. So he pretended to be a dry when in fact he, he, he drank like crazy. So Mark, you share a lot of drink recipes connected to every president, all of which Alan and I feel professionally obliged to try. How did you yeah. go about putting all these together? That must've been, you know, a lot of experimentation on your own. Well, in, in the interest of full disclosure, any of the, drink recipes that you find in uh, mint juleps and Teddy Roosevelt are legit. They, they have an historical connection. My publisher then split the book into drinking with the Dems, drinking with the Republicans. And then they interjected some sort of make-believe cocktails to go with each, uh, with, with each president. I think somewhere there's a small disclaimer that says they, just having a little fun doing that. They actually didn't give me much of a say on it. They said, hey, I, I know when I did the original book, they were like, hey, can you find us more cocktail recipes? And I'm like, you know, I, it, I was really trying to stick uh, to the historical uh, straight line on that. Well, we appreciate that. Do you have a favorite or favorites? Well, I'll tell you a really nice drink is the McKinley's Delight, named after when McKinley ran in uh, the late 1890s that some bartender in uh, St. Louis whipped that up and it's got a little absence in it and it's really it's really interesting it's a good drink uh, I recommend one if you have two call Uber because it's, it's got a little clout <laughs> to it but that's a good drink uh, I don't necessarily love the, the the Teddy Hat cocktail but it's a great story behind it it's a legit one and I, I can't even tell you exactly what the ingredients are. It is in the book, but it's a little cocktail. And what, what's fun about it is the lemon is carved out by the bartender to look like a Rough Rider hat. So when Teddy was running for the Bull Moose Party against Wilson and Taft, the Teddy hat cocktail, if you were a TR supporter, you, you'd order that. And if you got served that cocktail and you were a Taft or Wilson guy, you might fish the lemon out and throw it on the floor <laughs> to show your disdain. But uh, so it's kind of those those cocktails are sort of interesting. The McKinley's Delight, once the Spanish-American War started, they changed the name to the Remember the Maine, which I thought was interesting as well. So full disclosure, well, at least I have been drinking a Democratic favorite, Harry Truman. I've been having a little old-fashioned while we've been doing this interview <laughs> in honor of uh truman yeah mr truman. alan what are, what are I, you drinking I, i'm a bourbon guy i grew up in bourbon county kentucky so i thought well i'm going to try some other things that you had in in your books and i started my career years ago at the reagan library so i thought well i'll go to the reagan one and it was something called the the orange blossom special so has a vodka grenadine uh, orange juice or as i had today cranberry juice and it is really good it's it's quite dangerous it's it's so good and i like the the coolidge cooler and the taylor mexican coffee with tequila 
and coffee liqueur. That was really oh, good too. Alan. So again, I've really, I've really done my best to do this in a professional <laughs> way yeah. to try as many of these yeah. as I could. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm continuing it as, as we speak. I have a, a stout that I'm sipping and, um, in honor of Washington who really loved this stout from, uh, Philadelphia where he, and we know because he would write letters or he'd have his secretary do it that say, if Mr. Robert Hare has made any of his exquisite porter, could you please ship, you know, several gallons of it to Mount Vernon where it will be needed uh, next week, that kind of thing. Well, it will be needed, not enjoyed, but needed. Yes, that's right. It required. <laughs> we need it. Mark, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. What are you working on? What, what, could, what could you possibly follow up this series of books with? Well, actually, after the president's book, I did one about alcohol and the Civil War called uh, Muskets and Applejack. When I researched Grant, it sort of made me get interested in, uh, in alcohol and the Civil War. And uh, I actually liked that book better than the president's book, but it didn't sell as, as well as the president's books, whatever. But uh, it, that's also interesting, too, because, you know, if you got shot in the Civil War, the first thing you did was uh, reach in your, your officer's jacket, take out a little flask and drink down the bourbon or whiskey until somebody got out there to dig the bullet out of you or or drag you off the field. And then sometimes you would also have a little, it's almost like a rice crispy treat, except it was opium. If you really uh, had that, if you got shot. And then of course they treated you with alcohol if they had to cut your leg off or your arm off, you know? So uh, it really was sort of valuable in that way. And there, there's also some really funny stories that revolve around it with uh, the civil war as well. I don't know what's coming next. I, I've got some ideas and, uh, I may have to act on it soon, but once you jump off the cliff, you know, it's sometimes a, a year or two of research. And so you don't go into it without some uh, trepidation. Well, Mark, we, we have truly enjoyed you being on American POTUS. We, we hope you had a good time as well. And we hope you come back at some point. I, I, I loved it so much. And uh, both of you guys are so knowledgeable on the subject yourselves. I, but I appreciate it. And I hope your, your audience uh, lifts a glass when they listen to this. I really enjoyed our fun and very interesting conversation on this episode with Mark Will Weber about our presidents and their love or lack thereof for alcohol. Now, I'm from Bourbon County, Kentucky, so I was perhaps fated to love that spirit the most, but there are a few others that are pretty darn good, too, I will admit. Reading Mark's books not only made me thirsty, but it also led me to think about which three presidents I would most like to have a drink with on American POTUS. Now, the first thing I had to decide was this. Am I drinking with them to learn more about history, their deep thoughts on policies and the future of our republic? Or am I drinking with them to have a good time? And I chose, of course, the latter. I also had to decide if I thought the presidents in question would be fun after a few drinks. Or would they get moody, like I imagine Nixon could, or judgmental, like I'm sure both of the Adams would. Or too philosophical, like Jefferson surely would. Or maybe even surly and combative. And yes, I'm talking about you, Andrew Johnson and Andrew Jackson. I also had to think about which three would get along and be okay with having a drink together. I wouldn't, for example, include both Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison. And finally, I had to leave out those who, like Lincoln, simply didn't like to drink, or those who had a bad reputation for drinking 
and probably wouldn't want to add to that reputation like a Pierce or a Grant or those who had given up the stuff like George W. Bush. At the end of that rather involved thinking process, it came down to this. I would start with a refined cocktail, ordered and maybe even mixed by Franklin Roosevelt, then a nice Irish beer with Ronald Reagan, and finally a mint julep made with fine Kentucky bourbon, of course, with Theodore Roosevelt. Now I'm just going to end by saying this. If I threw all caution to the wind and eliminated all those qualifications I noted earlier, and just wanted to have the most outrageous episode ever of American POTUS, I would have endless drinks with Lyndon Johnson, Franklin Pierce, and Warren Harding. Now that would redefine what we mean by political party. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Mark Will Weber for joining us on this episode about presidential libations. More information on all of his books can be found on AmericanPOTUS.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs, offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org. We appreciate your help. American POTUS is produced by American History Studios. Graphic design by Prowler Design and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Lyndon Johnson. Quote, you have got to give a man a good reason to vote with you. Don't try to force him. A man can take a little bourbon without getting drunk, but if you hold his mouth open and pour in a quart, well, he's going to get sick on it.